Hi, this is Will Johnson, your host for AARP, The Perfect Scam. As we bring you the second part of our story about Captain Bobby Thompson and his fake veterans charity, we want to remind all of our listeners that you can check how watchdogs like Charity Navigator and Charity Watch rate an organization before you make a donation. Again, that's Charity Navigator and Charity Watch. You can also contact your state's charity regulator to verify that the organization is registered to raise money there. Fake charities like this one can have a real impact on legitimate charity organizations. Make sure your money is going to a trustworthy group. This week on AARP The Perfect Scam. This was one of the greatest White House breaches in history. Never before have I been able to find any other cases where someone with a stolen identity has been given access to the Oval Office. Bobby Thompson is not his real name. They did not know what his real name was. Uh, He was somebody that built everyday people out of $100 million, setting up a homeless Navy Veterans Association that was fictitious. He saw himself as being bulletproof. Nobody was going to catch him. Welcome back to AARP, The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Will Johnson. And joining me here in the studio, as always, is AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador, Frank Abagnale. And as always, great to be with you. We are talking again this week about Captain Bobby Thompson and the charity scam involving his fake charity, the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. He has all the trademarks of a classic con man, although, I mean, he has this appearance that is flamboyant, but somehow he's able to get into the Oval Office. Somehow he's able to get up and close and personal to the president and other political figures. Yeah, I think that con men understand that it's almost a domino effect. If I meet someone that's a political person, they believe totally that who I am and what I stand for. They introduce me to someone else. They're working off the credibility of the first person that introduced me. Then I meet this second person who may be a senator or a congressman, and that person introduces me to another person. And again, all those people are not working on the credibility of so-called Bobby Thompson, but the credibility of the people who he has met and convinced that he's that person. That domino effect can go all the way to the White House. So people start to take pictures with people. They start to show up at events and people get to know other people. And no one ever questions who really is this guy. Uh, So consequently, you can get a lot of people convinced you are who you say they are and they build the credibility for you. You're not doing it. You're allowing them to build your credibility. And as you have pointed out, con man comes from confidence, man. You're gaining people's trust and confidence. Exactly. All right, let's get into part two of our story and the chase for Captain Bobby Thompson. As we learned last time, Bobby Thompson had set up a fictitious charity called the U.S. Navy Veterans Association, and over the course of many years had raised millions of dollars in donations. But due to the hard work of a newspaper reporter in Tampa, Florida, the scam had been revealed and a warrant issued for Thompson's arrest. But the secretive and flamboyant Thompson had disappeared. Law enforcement was left to piece together whatever they had on him in order to track him down. Across the country, various states were taking an interest. As it turns out, the state of Ohio takes the lead on the case. Brad Tamara was senior assistant attorney general with the Special Prosecutions Unit. I believe the the amount of money was in the area from just the state of Ohio was in the area of two to three million dollars had been collected from Ohio citizens. The fact that the information indicated that he had co-opted uh, another, you know, a rank and a, and a military service that he didn't deserve uh, did not set well. In particular, I thought because I, being a veteran myself at the time. Uh, I didn't. I didn't appreciate that. The violations that we charged were state state crimes. 
under our state laws. Uh, any state could do the same thing. Thompson's last known address was a duplex in Florida, but he had cleared out, and they had only bits and pieces of clues to his whereabouts. There, were, there was a, uh, a photograph of an individual in a bank going into an ATM-type machine that, that resembled him. In 2010, the Ohio Attorney General's office turned to the U.S. Marshals, and the man leading the charge was Pete Elliott, U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Ohio. My father's a U.S. Navy veteran. So, you know, from day one, when they came to us and asked us, uh, you know, to go and investigate this and find him, I, I was sure we were going to find him. I didn't know how long it was going to take, and I didn't realize then where it was going to lead us. I put together a task force made up of uh, members of my department, along with local police officers that are assigned to my Northern Ohio Violent Fugitive Task Force, and we went after Mr. Bobby Thompson. You you get this uh, this job of of apprehending finding somebody who is not the name of the person that you're looking for, but you have what what do you have to go on at that basically point? Basically nothing, uh, but that, that's <laughs> kind of the way we like it sometimes. We right, basically right. Uh, didn't know you know what state he'd be in or where he would be, uh, so we started you know at the beginning. But I told my guys that you know you have the freedom to go wherever you want to go on this case and follow up on this case. You know I want him apprehended. Uh, it took him all over the nation, and uh, and you know he had about 19 fictitious identifications, I believe, overall that we were able to tie him to. A number of them were uh, from individuals, including the real Bobby Thompson, that that uh, lived on an Indian reservation, um, and a number of his identifications were the same. They're from individuals that uh, lived on reservations, and which would be hard for you know somebody to tie back to him. You know, again, Bobby Thompson is what we had. We had a you know approximate age of him, uh, what we thought. Um, some other you know some other identifiers, but we really had nothing to go on. You're talking about a guy that uh, we knew was a titan and in with a number of politicians. He was an individual that under his fake name, was able to gain access to the president of the United States and to a number of high-level politicians. And he also had a pretty distinct appearance, but I, I guess in your line of work, you know that people can change that yes, up. Yes, definitely. But, uh, you know, certain <laughs> things always stuck out with Bobby Thompson, the way he wore his hair. He always had a pompadour hairstyle all through the pictures of him and the politicians and, you know, throughout the years. So, um, you know, man is a creature of habit, and so, so is a woman in, in a lot of ways. That's something I learned, I think, in my first day of uh, the police academy, and it's, it's held true over the period of time, is some things you change in life and other things you just don't. This is Jody. As Pete Elliott and the U.S. Marshals were following the trail of Bobby Thompson, Jody Andes was tracking down the money. Hey, how are you? A former newspaper reporter now writing a book about Thompson. At the time, she was working as an investigator for the Ohio Attorney General's Office on the civil litigation. I was assigned to this case because it was particularly difficult and they were struggling to come up with new leads. And as a reporter, I kind of saw it a little different than uh, the investigators did. And it just kind of grew from there. It was an incredibly complex fraud um, case where it was just one lead led to another, but yet you can never track down anything definitive or so it seemed. She also recalls the photo with the president and other politicians at the White House. It was one of the reasons the case stuck out for her. This was one of the greatest White House 
breaches in history. Never before have I been able to find any other cases where someone with a stolen identity has been given access to the Oval Office. It was a soiree, if you will. It was a gathering of uh, big donors. So he was in there for some time. So this was not simply just a photo op, take your picture and move on. This was hear from the president who answered a Q&A um, of these special guests and uh, took multiple pictures with each person. As Jody Andy searched through bank accounts and never-ending dead ends, U.S. Marshals were also following dead ends. At this point is when it's very much like Mr. Abagnale's Catch Me If You Can, where he's just ahead of authorities and they're, they're, they're closing in on him, but they, they, they're not quite able to get to him in time, and he's, and he's able to get out and uh, ahead of them. One of the people Pete Elliott reached out to early on was Helen McMurray, the unwitting attorney who had served as general counsel for the USNVA and who eventually turned Thompson into police. The U.S. Marshal came to me, and, you know, he, he said, Helen, you know, I, I want to talk to you about your personal relationship because there, there probably will be things that you'll tell me about him that might help me find him. And so uh, I, I met with the, the U.S. Marshal and gave him some information that made him start to focus in on the southwest part of the United States. And sure enough, he found a trail uh, um, of, um, you know, where Bobby Thompson had been. We put up billboards uh, at one point in the Arizona area and different areas, just asking if, you know, anybody knew Bobby Thompson um, or who he was. So we, we zeroed in on some places, but we really didn't get anywhere. Um, we stayed on it, and I've got very dedicated, uh, you know, deputy U.S. marshals and local police officers assigned to the task force, and they just didn't quit. In 2012, as the manhunt continued around the country, Celia Moore put an ad on Craigslist renting out her room in Portland, Oregon, in her boarding house. She quickly got a response from a man named Don Morset. He was at that time living in a motel and uh, gave me a, a story about having uh, moved to Portland. He's got an ex-wife who, who's trying to get his money. He's working as a consultant for Boeing. He, he does security work, so he was helping them. He was supposedly meeting with their people in uh, downtown Portland, and, and he was helping to advise them on how to make their warehouses more secure. What does he look like? I mean, he had a very unique appearance, has a unique appearance. He was neat. He, he dresses neat, and his hair was a little long. He looked like he was in his late 50s, and his hair seemed a little long, but it wasn't outrageous. Um, we sat down and talked, and he told me what he said was his background. And it was unusual, but he seemed um, like he would be okay to live with. The first thing I said to my daughter after meeting with him was, I think he's okay. Um, he sure likes to to mess with your head. And if you run a shared house where you're used to renting to people, you've probably seen all sorts of people come and go. Oh, have I ever? <laughs> <laughs> how many how many days do you have to listen? So then, what happens? You decide, sure, I'll, I'll I'll rent to this guy, and he moves in. Yeah, he signed a lease, and um, he he started moving his things in. You know, he had a bad leg at that point, and walked with a cane. So um, he couldn't carry a lot at any one time. 
So I tried to help him. And once he is moved in, or does he get to know some of the other people in the house, or what, how would you describe his comings and goings and socializing with, with you or others? He was he left in the mornings and would come home in the evenings, sometimes fairly late. Um, he said he was working, and he got to know people, he'd chat with them, and he, again, tried to say outrageous things and disturb people, or at least get them riled up. One of our other roommates um, had been a high school physics teacher, and he was a smart guy, and and they would get into these conversations, and and, um, we called him Don. Don would just get him all upset about the outrageous things he would say, till one night, one of the other roommates heard the heard them the guy say to him he called well he he called him a dirty name and and said you're really a terrible person so things so things started to get it sounds like a little uncomfortable and did you have any uh only with only really with one guy but again you could sense that he enjoyed this. Yeah, right. He likes to stir the pot a little bit. Or, right, yeah. right. And when he did it with me, I would just blow him off. Right. You got I was uh, like, He's looking for people to take the bait and, and run right. with it. Yeah. And this other guy took the bait, and I didn't. Yeah. So, I mean, that was just a way of entertaining himself. He wasn't bad, but he just liked to um, say outrageous things and see what kind of a response he got. Celia wasn't taking any of Don Morset's bait. She seems good-natured and almost as if she enjoyed Don's presence. She saw him at least once a day, leaving early in the morning and coming back in the evening. He'd bring home a frozen dinner and drink a Pepsi for breakfast. But he lived simply and didn't cause too much trouble. Still, like Celia says, he liked to stir the pot a little bit. In any situation, he seemed to be messing with you. That's, that's the way he... he operated. Did you feel bad for him at all, or was that... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially with his leg. He was in a lot of pain with that leg. Um, he wore a brace and he used a cane. And every morning I could tell when he was up because his room was down the hall from me. And I could smell the Bengay that he would put on it. I think he had some sort of a degenerative disease going on there. But he was afraid to go to a doctor, which isn't what he said to me. I, I I can't recall what he said. It was maybe it was something like, you know, I don't trust doctors. I don't know, but he wasn't going to go to a doctor. Later on, Celia came to learn that Don's daily schedule included, or primarily consisted of, spending time on a bar stool. He wasn't consulting with Boeing or anyone else. I think he just sat there all day drinking. Celia started to learn more about Don's past, or at least what he told her about his family and his upbringing. He told her he grew up around the Great Lakes, had gotten married, had children. He said all kinds of things. I asked him about his children. He told me he had, he was divorced. He had a terrible wife. It was a terrible divorce. Um, and I said, well, tell me about your children. Where are they? What's going on? Oh, well, one of them is traveling the country, finding himself. I forget what he told me about the other boy. And then he had a girl, he said, and she was an attorney in New York. Over those three months in 2012, when he was at Celia's boarding house, Don never caused too much of a stir, other than starting a few arguments with other renters. But he paid his rent on time, and Celia didn't have any issues with him. 
But if Thompson was laying low, biding his time, maybe dreaming up new scams, federal agents weren't resting. It was a nationwide manhunt. They still didn't have much to go on, maybe some leads here and there, and even a close call early on in Rhode Island, according to Jody Andes. When he left Florida, um, for a while he was over on the East Coast, and he was living up in Rhode Island, and it was at that time that the Ohio Attorney General's office was investigating the case, and they had his story aired on America's Most Wanted. Um, and it's quite clear that he was watching. He didn't see the actual episode aired live, um, but got wind of it and uh, intensely tracked any news dealing with the episode. He also went down to New Orleans um, and was down there briefly and um, then went west. He mostly stayed in major cities, though. They followed more leads, more dead ends to the southwest, to New Mexico. But finally, authorities had some real information. They learned that Thompson might be in Portland, Oregon. They even had intel on the tavern where he liked to hang out. Finally, one night, a U.S. Marshal on Pete Elliott's team strolled into Don Morset's favorite watering hole. We set up surveillance, and at one point, uh, we, uh, one of my deputies was able to go into a local tavern, and sitting across from him was none other than Bobby Thompson. Brad Tomorrow, with the Ohio Attorney General's office, recalls the night of the arrest. When the agent was out there, he was wearing an Ohio State sweatshirt. Uh, well, since Ohio, it was it, it was in the papers that we were, you know, there was nationwide search going on for him. And uh, the agent thought that, at the U.S. Marshal thought, if I go walking in there with an Ohio State sweatshirt on and I just happen to appear here in this bar in the, in the far west, he's going to get wise that we're looking for him. So he took his sweatshirt off, goes into the bar, sets down at the bar, looks over, and he goes, there he is, sitting right there. Uh, I believe the deputy followed him out and... Uh, Mr. Uh, Thompson, at that point, went to, I believe it was a local Piggly Wiggly grocery store where he got on a court cart and was riding through the store. And did he have this the, the, the mustache going and the pompadour hair and all that? Did he pretty much look the same? Yeah, he looked like Bobby Thompson. He, he left the last place and was walking down the residential street, which happened to have no traffic on it. So when the vehicles came back, he looked over his shoulder and he goes... He sort of sees that he's being followed. Back at the boarding house, just a few blocks away from the tavern, Celia Moore is sound asleep when her dog starts growling and another housemate knocks on the door. And Rob spoke up and said, Celia, I think you better come downstairs. We have a situation. I thought, oh, my God, Don might be hurt, you know, with his leg. So I jumped up and I went downstairs in my nightgown. I went downstairs and... Standing in my dining room was a guy named Bill Bolden. He's a U.S. Marshal. And he had his big old badge pulled out of his shirt. And standing in my living room were 10 either U.S. Marshals who had come from Ohio or the rest of them were deputized Portland detectives. Turns out Bobby Thompson had already been taken into custody, stopped by U.S. Marshals on the street outside the boarding house. Celia had slept right through it. But her housemate Rob heard it all and saw Don Morset, a.k.a. Bobby Thompson, as his life on the run finally came to an end. He was on the run for almost two years, I think. And yes, we were, we were very uh, happy that he'd, he'd been captured. I mean, because again, there were millions of dollars missing. It was amazing that he stayed in the States. Now, you know, and, and, and was caught. 
and part of that would have to be his own arrogance. Back in Ohio, Pete Elliott hears the news of Thompson's arrest. I was actually coaching first base for my son's baseball team at the time, and, uh, and I got the call from, from Bill, and he said, we got him. But the mystery of Bobby Thompson, even after all this time in a nationwide manhunt over a two-year period, has not been solved. Thompson wasn't talking, or at least he wasn't saying much, and he definitely wasn't telling anyone his true identity. So we put him in the county jail, again, fingerprinted him, and for sure I thought the game was over and we'd be able to get his true identity, but the fingerprints came back with nothing being in the file, and that's probably the first time I've seen that in my career. So you had your man, but you just didn't have his identity. We had our man, we had no idea who he was. We caught the fish, but we could not tell you what kind of fish he was. We thought for sure, and I thought for sure, uh, when we arrested him and, and uh, brought him over to the local county jail, and we ran his fingerprints, that we'd be able to de then determine who he was, because his fingerprints would have to be in the file somewhere uh, for something. As soon as we arrested Bobby Thompson on the scene, he made some comment to my deputy saying, you know, I don't need to tell you my real name. Uh, he made some kind of uh, statement that uh, almost sounded like Mr. Thompson was an attorney. Um, and when he w was brought into the local jail there in, in the Oregon area, he signed his name as Mr. X. He would not give his real true identity. So Mr. X's fingerprints didn't turn up a match. Nothing. What they did find on Thompson was a key to a storage unit. We were able to get a search warrant for that storage unit, and we were able to uh, get $1 million in cash that Bobby Thompson had stored in that storage unit. And kind of interesting that he had a, a million bucks squirreled away, and then he was living very frugally in a boarding house. Yeah, amazing. And he had access to that money, uh, which makes you think. He'd go out there to back to the uh, storage facility almost every day, and he'd go up to that storage locker by himself. Uh, so every day he was there. he had the million dollars, but he was still organizing another charity, and he was going to start doing the exact same thing that he had done before under a completely different name, and you know, at this time a different set of targets. You know, people with more religious leanings that would be donating money. So wait, he would he would go to the storage locker almost every day and just organize and check it out. And I don't know what he was doing. I mean, other than there was another suitcase in there with all kinds of uh, identification information that it had been assembled, uh, you know, for other identities. Some of it was already made into fake IDs with his picture on them and stuff. And other ones were basically on, as I would put it, on standby. So if he had to go on the run, he could uh, he could uh, assume another personality and dummy up more uh, fake IDs. My co-host, Frank Abagnale, who is featured in the movie Catch Me If You Can, I don't know whether he'd be pleased to know that one of the items in the storage locker was, was a copy of that movie. Yeah, yeah. That's what, uh, again, that was, uh, well, that was actually in his... Uh, in his in house. The, uh, in the, yeah, the boarding house that he was staying in. Right. Yeah, he had the, uh, he had the video in there. So he, you know, he, I think he, in the end, he saw himself as being bulletproof, that he, you know, he, nobody was going to catch him and he was going to start doing everything that he had done before. One million dollars, disguises, fake IDs, a DVD of our favorite movie, and plans to start a new charity scam. But no fingerprints and no ID, and no sign of the millions of dollars he stole. 
Next time on AARP The Perfect Scam, find out what investigators learn as they dig deeper into the strange, twisted tale of Bobby Thompson, or Don Morsett, or Mr. X. And I'm back with AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador, Frank Abagnale. Frank, uh, I guess you don't want the movie to be necessarily like a primer for con men, right? No, and I should say that in my career doing the things that I did, I never had a day where I thought, catch me if you can. I never thought, I always knew they'd catch me. Oh, that's interesting. It was just a matter of time. And uh, I knew eventually they'd catch up with me. So I never lived day to day saying I'm outsmarting them, I'm smarter than them. I was trying to stay ahead of them. But I knew it was all down to a limited amount of time till eventually they caught me. Did that make it easier when they finally caught up with you? I think that and the fact that I didn't let my ego think that I'm the greatest and they'll never get me and I'll outsmart all of them. I knew that there were very smart people out there and they were going to eventually track me down. Well, it is interesting to learn uh, what, what Bobby Thompson was, was storing away in his boarding house and also in his locker, and maybe not surprising to learn that he was already planning maybe some other charities these uh, pointed at or focused on religious groups. Yeah, I think all, all of these con men don't just get finally found out and then say, oh, I'm done, I'm going to walk away. They just move on to the next scam or the next con. So, you know, to him it was just, okay, I blew this now, but I made a lot of money, so I'll just move on to the next scam. And that's also what amazes me is the greed that, you know, that people have today. When you even look at the Enrons and the WorldComs and the Tycos of the world, those scams, um, you know, you want to say, when is enough enough? So if you and I are sitting here and I made $100 million, what's to do? I mean, you want to just disappear and spend the $100 million. You don't sit there thinking, how do I make another $100 million? Yeah. And you're not somebody 20 so, you know, you, how much time do you have left and how much time, money can you spend? So that's where greed comes into play. It's, not, it's more about greed and ego than it is about anything else. And when you were a young man, as you've told us before, you, were, you started out certainly just trying to get by. Right. And, I, and, you know, and I did it. It became uh, more of doing it. But I, I realized that I was going to get caught, yeah. you know, and that eventually they were going to – I wasn't going to go off somewhere and spend the money and the rest of my life and nobody ever catch me. Uh, you know, I knew that wasn't going to happen. Maybe they should have named the movie, like, when are they going to catch me? Yeah, not or, or uh, catch me. Not if, but when. <laughs> right. That's right. I'm always interested in stories about someone who is on the run and disappearing in the United States or, or anywhere around the world. I mean, it's got to be harder to disappear. You know, I, I don't really think so. I think here's the thing. First of all, you, it is so much easier today than when I did it 50 years ago because you have such use of technology and the ability to create identifications and IDs and assume identification. You know, I used to always say years ago that if somebody escaped from a prison tomorrow and they went off to work on some farm in the middle of the United States and never got in trouble again, never got caught speeding or anything else. They're home you're free. Probably, you're home free. Yeah. What typically happens is they go do something and they get caught at it. Then they find out they're wanted somewhere else or they escape from prison. Something as simple as speeding and they find out that it's not that person or the license is false and then they start to check on them. But yeah, if you were to disappear and actually go just anywhere in the world and kind of disappear with a, a phony name and you didn't do anything wrong again, you didn't do things to draw attention to yourself... Uh, they probably would not find you, but tend to be again. This is where ego comes in. Uh, you got to go back to conning people again. You got to go back to doing these things again, and eventually that leads to you being caught. What do you think might might work better, going to the small farm out in the middle of nowhere or a big city? 
I think today, either not one, to give advice. You know, I'm not guys, getting advice, but I think either one, no matter where you go, whether I go to South America, whether I go to some little town in Italy, yeah. no matter where that I go, nice. yeah, I think uh, as long as you're not doing anything to draw attention to yourself or yeah. breaking any other laws, you probably no one's ever going to know who you are or who cares who you are if you're not bringing attention to yourself. All right, let's come back next week, Frank, and find out what happens with Captain Bobby Thompson. They they have him. They, he's behind bars but they don't know who the heck he really is. If you or someone you know has been the victim of a fraud or scam, call AARP's Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. All right, folks, stay safe out there. And remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Many thanks to our producers, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis. Also, audio engineer Julio Gonzalez. And of course, my co-host, Frank Abagnale. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson.